Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hey, folks, it's Rena Jadhav here, and I've got with me today Dr. Sarah. She's a naturopathic doctor and expert who is focused on women's health, especially, and this is the part I love, teen health, teen health, mental health. And today we're going to talk about this crazy invasion of sickness and disease and anxiety and depression and phantom aches and pains and autoimmune issues in students in high school and colleges. So many of the college students are taking time off, coming home, taking a year off. They're having gut issues. They're having stomach issues, digestive issues. And of course, as they get older, they start to develop these autoimmune issues. So Dr. Sarah is here with us today to help us get to the bottom of this so we can all lead amazingly healthy lives. And again, if you're a parent of a teen, you're going to want to listen to this and then hopefully get your child to listen to this as well. Dr. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm elated and so excited to be here and to talk with you today, and yeah, I'm excited to get into this information. It's such a passion of mine to help the young adults, whether they're going into college or while they're in college, just have that strong foundation of health so that they, they can then go forth and do all the things that they care about and focus on their studies or their athletics or whatever they're passionate about and not have health be an obstacle to cure in that department. Absolutely. You know, let's talk about why are these kids getting sick? What is going on? That is a great question. So when I see my adolescent patients, or any patient for that matter, there are what I call my determinants of health, things that I want to make sure are in check and that are being um, completed out and fulfilled properly. And that's patient sleep, their diet, their exercise, their water intake, what their stress levels are like, and um, their bowel movements. And if all of those things are working in proper accordance, then there's other things to investigate. But that's what I call my foundations of health and things that should be in alignment. And for the most part, college students, they're not sleeping correctly. They're not eating correctly. If they're exercising, they might be over-exercising and not exercising the right parts of their body that they should be. the quality of their water, I can't imagine is that great. And also the amount of stress that they're under in those first few college years is very extreme when compared to when they were living in a household that was most likely nurturing their environment for success. So those are all areas that I work with my patients. And once those are all um, in proper accordance, um, disease or illnesses seem to go down and disappear. So those are the the main things that I focus on with those adolescents. All right, well, let's go down that list. Let's start. What is, of the ones you've mentioned, if you had to start with one, what is the absolute most important thing that every team needs to get sorted out? Sleep, for sure. I couldn't agree more. This is I mean, we, I could talk about sleep for five hours. <laughs> we got a limited amount, amount of time here today, but I'll talk to you about it um, in a few things in regards to our cognitive function, in regards to our immune system, and in regards to our health and our, um, our pain tolerance. 
really quick, there's this awesome study that was done that showed people who had less hours of sleep in the night, they then tested them the next morning. And those who had more sleep were able to hold their hands in ice cold buckets of water for a longer amount of time. And this is really key for patients who are suffering with autoimmune diseases that cause pain, because once they have their increased uh, amount of sleep in their life, they don't experience those achy joints or painful muscles or those migraine headaches as much as if they weren't getting their right amount of sleep. But something for college kids that's really, really important with sleep is the impact that it has on our immune system. So while we're sleeping, our immune system releases these proteins called cytokines, which help promote sleep sometimes. And these certain cytokines are needed to increase when we have an infection or any inflammation or when we're under stress, they also are released. And with sleep deprivation, um, we don't have these cytokines being released. And so when our body's trying to fight off infections or fight off illnesses or combat stress, we aren't able to do so as adequately as if when we're getting our eight or nine hours of sleep. Um, there's also so many studies that show the importance of sleep with cognitive function and being alert, which we know if we only get one hour, one hour of sleep, we're not gonna be awake and really fully 100% there to tackle our exams or our homework. Um, another study that was done showed that when we had daylight, daylight savings time and high school students were driving to school, when they cut the, the clock back, I think it's falling back, um, and got one hour of sleep, there was a huge increase in car accidents. Um, and it's shown that less sleep is, and driving is worse than drunk driving. And I'm not promoting drunk driving at all. I'm just saying that that's how much a lack of sleep can affect your cognitive function. It's really, really bad. So mm -hmm. my, my number one thing for everybody that I see is to have a set bedtime and to have um, things that they do, whether that's a nighttime routine or if they have to take certain supplements that they've talked to their, you know, um, provider about taking to get them to fall asleep on time and getting those eight to nine hours of sleep and that they are able to wake up feeling rested. I would say so many of my patients, you know, they come in and they start seeing me and I ask them how they feel when they wake up in the morning and gosh, I'd say over 90% of them say they don't feel good or they don't feel ready to take on the day. And that's something that I'm like, okay, my goal is for you to wake up and feel ready and capable and excited to take on your day. And there's so many factors that go into getting a proper and healthy sleep. And um, yeah, that's my number one thing that I would say that. How many, how many hours of sleep should a teenager be getting? Eight, a minimum of eight. And I know, you know, late high school years, so like 15 to 20, you feel like you can run on less hours of sleep, like maybe five or six, but it's still so imperative that they're getting a minimum of eight hours of sleep. Now you were in college pretty recently. Yeah. How did you pull it off? Because when I've had this conversation with my 20 year old, she says there's just, there's not enough hours in the day. There's no way that I can sleep. Yeah, no, it's, I can't, gosh, it'd be a hypocrite for me to say that I was sleeping eight hours a night when I was in college. But recently when I was in medical school, I was most definitely making sure that I was getting my eight hours of sleep. And so the way that you're able to pull it off is you are able to function at such a higher level of whether that's physical agility or mental agility when you do have those eight hours of sleep. And if you were to comp compromise and maybe stay up two hours past your bedtime, you're only really functioning at perhaps maybe 30 to 40% of brain power as you would if you just went to bed and then did that work the next morning. So 
Um, I think getting a tutor or a classmate or a professor to help you figure out with how to use your time management most effectively because that's one of the main things when I hear kids saying, you know, there's not enough time in the day to get my eight hours of sleep, I can't do it. Well, then it's taking a look at your calendar and seeing what are you doing from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And once you've taken out the classes and you're only looking at their free time, you probably have like, I don't know, every college schedule is different, but then you're looking at maybe five or six hours in the day where they are studying, but are they really studying, right? And it's making sure that you're helping them use their time effectively. And that means no cell phones while they're studying, no internet when they're reading their textbooks and no distractions. And so when people are, are saying like there's not enough time in a day, well then it's kind of dissecting, or not kind of, it's really dissecting and looking into how they're using their time and how to more effectively go through their day so that they can get that sleep and figuring out what the obstacles are that make them feel as if they do have to stay up until 2, 3, or maybe 4 a.m. to get their work done. I think it's also a great opportunity to reprioritize because there might be way too many things on the plate. There might be too many clubs that they've joined. There might be too many social engagements. There might be projects. You know, there's, I think there's personality types that also overcommit and overdo in learning that it's not a question of how much can I do and not sleep. It's more about how do I make sure that I'm asleep at this time to this time, and then I only do things that fit in my schedule around that. And I think that's a skill that isn't taught. No counselor ever sits down with a teen and says, let's, let's help you reprioritize. You know, why are you doing these four things? And I like them as not a good enough answer. Um, exactly. How do you, um, I, I think it's just so important because um, we know for a fact that lack of sleep leads to anxiety, depression. Mm -hmm. It leads to weight gain. It mm -hmm. leads to creating a broken sleep cycle, which means you end up with insomnia for life because now you've just completely broken your melatonin cycle. And it just, it creates autoimmune. We know that. So, yeah. um, so number one, you're saying pick a time to sleep, turn everything off, get your eight hours and fit your life around that. What's number two? Number two is, oh gosh, this is a toss up between what their diet looks like and um, what their mindfulness and stress resilience look like. But I would have to say what their diet looks like is my number two. I would have gone with stress, but okay, let's look at their <laughs> diet. Well, let's talk about stress too. It's, it's, you know, it might be stress. So I see a lot of patients with eating disorders and I work a lot in that field. So I think I have um, a big pull to making sure that my patients are getting properly nourished in the health department. But if I zoom out and I look at the big population, I think you're, you're right in saying that stress is something that's really important and creating a resilience to not be stressed out. Um, at least for me with a personal history, every time when I was an undergrad, Whenever it was exam time to come around, I would get knocked down with strep throat every single cycle, yeah. every quarter, and yeah. it was 100% stress related. So let's talk about stress. <laughs> so let's talk nutrition, and then we can talk about stress. So sounds great. Nutrition. We know they're living either off of really crappy, toxic um, college food, mm -hmm. or they're ordering in. Right these days, that's the new thing. Yep. Um, neither of which are great. What, what do you recommend? What, what are the core 
factors of nutrition that these teams need to keep in mind as they run around their day? Yeah, of course. So when I talk about food with my patients, I talk about the fab four in every single meal, and that is having a majority of their plate being leafy greens, then the fourth, the fab four is leafy greens, starchy vegetables, a protein, and a healthy fat. So leafy greens meaning their spinach, their kale, their romaine lettuce, you know, whatever their leafy green is, and then a starchy vegetable. So carrots, sweet potatoes, Brussels sprouts, um, broccoli, asparagus being another 15% of their plate. And then the last tiny portion, about 7% each being a healthy protein, whether that is from an animal protein that is a high quality, you know, grass fed organic animal protein, or if they're vegetarian or vegan doing a high quality protein there or a healthy and a healthy fat. So having nuts and seeds or avocados or coconut oil, um, being a part of their meal and every single meal has to have those four components. You know, you can't just have um, a piece of protein and think that's a meal, or you can't just have the green juice and consider that a meal. Like every meal needs to have those four, four components and they have to be eating three meals a day because without, so this, this will go into when we talk about stress too, but to create health, our body has to be able to feel safe. And if our body doesn't know when the next time we're going to eat in, eat is going to be, it's going to feel stressed out. So every day, eating at the same time, going to bed at the same time, exercising at the same time, having the same mindfulness exercises throughout the day can create a routine where our body feels safe. The same way when we have babies, you know, they, we feed them the same time. They hopefully take naps at the same time. I know it's a toss up there too, but you put them to bed and wake them up all at the same time because we're creating an environment where they're, they're feeling safe in. And I like to talk about that with food as well. So eating three meals a day, having those four components in those meals is very, very, very important. And then if you want, I know it's so hard to stay away from indulging in desserts and sweets and caffeine and alcohol in those college years, but really limiting those and enjoying them in moments of time where you don't have exams or you don't have stressful things coming off so that your body is able to take them in and digest them. And it's no longer going to be such a taxing thing as if you were moving through in a stressful like exam week or in a period of time where you can't compromise your health because sugar and alcohol and um, I can go into a lot of things that we, should, we shouldn't be putting into our bodies, but those things really do have detrimental effects on us and cause inflammation and do cause us to be sick much easier. Where do fruits fit in? Oh, fruits fit in. Bake, sorry, those fit in for like snacks and throughout the day. I think fruits are really, really great. Um, it gets tricky because some people will take fruits and eat so many of them. They are high in sugar content. I'm a huge advocate for fruits though. So if you're eating a fruit, having pairing it with um, a healthy fat like apples and nut butter or um, a banana with some pumpkin seeds and having a binder there for it to help properly digest the sugars that you're, you're putting down. So we know how hard it is for these students to eat three meals a day. Yes. And yes. we know that a lot of these students, the first meal of their day is actually coffee. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the science around kind of coffee on an empty stomach? And what are your thoughts about coffee being the first meal of the day? Gosh, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I think for young adults, I mean, for any adult, 
caffeine first thing in the morning can really jolt our system. And I could also talk for hours about hormones too, but in taking that early morning caffeine, we're really messing with our body's own um, effect of releasing cortisol and cortisol is our stress hormone. And um, it has its own cyclical pattern throughout the day. And in the morning, it is naturally going to be high and rising. And I do know that long-term drinking of coffee will mess up that natural spike in cortisol to the point where you're no longer able to function without having that morning coffee. And also for gut health, you know, putting that coffee first thing into your stomach. For most people, it can be pretty disrupting and can cause diarrhea or having to go to the bathroom right away or um, really mess up our, our gut lining down there. So if you want to have coffee, I talk about having it either after your breakfast or mid-morning and giving your body its own chance to wake up and, you know, digest some other nutrients in there first. But go ahead and tell me about what you're going to say about coffee. No, that's exactly, there was a a new study that came out that talked about how incredibly toxic coffee is on an empty stomach, how it completely brutalizes the lining and the stomach and um, bingo, you know, creates this cortisol overlay which your body just doesn't need at that age anyway you're already stressed the last thing you need is you know stress on steroids and then that does mess up your sleep cycle it's literally the worst thing that kids can do first thing in the morning but they're so tired that they think that's what they need and i've you know said this over and over again try a smoothie with the right ingredients and you will feel more awake more alert than you can ever imagine yeah, but it's a question of branding, right? Coffee's just got a better branding. Um, it's you know, we're shoving coffee in, you know, in television, on ads, you know, Starbucks. We've we've made it as if the coffee is is the morning breakfast, and it's it's our fault, you know. We've allowed this to happen, and I think um, I think smoothies need a new, need a better PR machinery. Yeah, they need to have a comeback. Yeah, they, they were kind of cool a couple of years ago, and. Coffee has become very aesthetically pleasing, right? You'll post photos on Instagram and Facebook of you studying with the coffee nearby and you go on coffee dates to meet up with people that you're friends with or maybe you like checking out romantically. And it's, it is like kind of the new morning alcohol, I would say. It's, it's very yeah. for for our kids and for the population. It, I love that. It is the morning alcohol. It really I've never said that before, but I love it now too. It, yes, it's the morning alcohol and it's just as bad. So, okay, so that's that's all the nutrition. Uh, what are your thoughts on organic versus non-organic and then gluten and dairy? Oh, that's a great question. So um, organic and non-organic, it is so important if financially you have the means to do so and the resources to purchase organic fruits and vegetables and um, produce as well. If finances are a restriction for you, check out the Dirty Dozen and then Clean 15. Are you familiar with that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great resource for people. So the Dirty Dozen means it's the 12 fruits and vegetables that no matter what, you should always buy organic because they're absorbing the pesticides and the chemicals that are on them much much more so and and they're more superficial on the fruits and vegetables the clean 15 are the fruits and vegetables that you can get away with with if you aren't purchasing them organic um so i always advocate for getting organic because 
these chemicals and these pesticides that are in or on these fruits and vegetables, they come into our body and they are messing with our hormones. They are messing with our immune system. There are toxins that can affect our brain and the way that our neurons are working. And it's, it's just so sad to me that it's even a thing that we have to think about buying organic or not organic. And for those of you who are listening in and you want to know what these are, for example, apples and strawberries are on the top of the list. But this list changes every year and it's published by EWG. Just Google Dirty Dozen Clean 15, you know, 2020 is around the corner. Uh, make sure you get the 2020 list. And um, it, it's an absolute no-brainer. You know, you mentioned financially. Um, there, there was um, there's an organization called, I think, organic.org or organics.org or bioorganics.org, but they did this survey and they found that people, the amount of money we're losing when we get sick, the amount of people that are going bankrupt when they get sick, that it's actually financially better to eat organic and not get sick. Yep. Because in America today, I think the number third cause of bankruptcy is actually medical bills. Um, so I really think that there is no excuse for anyone to eat anything other than organic. Um, but you're right, there is a clean 15 list. And if you don't have to, there's no reason. For example, avocados, you know, you can get definitely get away with eating uh, non-organic avocados. And um, so that's, that's typically, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that. What about gluten and dairy? So I, gluten and dairy, I, the way I practice with my patients, we always start off our first one to three months working together with no gluten and no dairy. Dairy is such a huge cause for inflammation in the body. Um, for adolescents, they'll see acne or irregular menstrual cycles or bloating or um, constipation or diarrhea. And just by the simplicity of removing dairy, so many of those things go away. Um, gluten is another, another thing that I like to have patients off of for a little bit. And, you know, a lot of people think it's just like a trendy thing that healthcare providers are asking them to do. But gluten has been shown, and Rena, I'm sure you know the information on this, as um, a huge cause for leaky gut, which is then a huge cause for autoimmune disease. And especially patients who have autoimmune disorders in regards to the thyroid, um, I don't know how much time we have to go into detail with this, but the gluten, the tiny little molecule that it breaks down to into our body looks very similar in our body as our thyroid tissue. And so people who have autoimmune thyroid disease, when we eat gluten, our body then is signaled to then go and attack our thyroid tissue because they think it's an inflammation and a reactivity response that has to happen. So gluten has also been shown to be super inflammatory for many other autoimmune disorders and other diseases that can occur in our body. So I, you know, in college, it can be really, really tricky to be gluten-free, but I like to have my patients eat as much whole foods, plant-based foods as possible, and stay away from gluten and dairy. Mm -hmm. And you know, these days, there are so many wonderful alternatives to gluten. There There's are. just no reason anymore. There used to be, I mean, I, anyone born 20 years ago, I think it was a lot harder, but organizations like Simple Mills, like you can get crackers and then there's great bread, gluten-free bread. You can't even really tell the difference. Um, most restaurants now offer uh, gluten-free crusts. Not all gluten-free products are good, by the way. You do have to read ingredients. There's a lot of crap out there masquerading as gluten-free and sometimes even worse. 
But if you look at an or you know something like a simple Mills product, it's just almond flour basically. It's almond flour, tapioca, cane sugar, and boom, you're done. I mean, there you can get cookies and crackers and pizza dough mixes, and so there's really no excuse these days. I think um, it's you know I always put it down on we all do what we're used to doing, and so change is hard, right? Yep. That first change is hard. Once you've made that change you've made that commitment, it becomes so much easier. We as a family tend to be gluten dairy free. Um, food sensitivity testing is the one thing I tell everybody, just get it done, find out what, what's going on with your gut. Um, Cause that's, that's just so important. All right, let's talk about stress. That's number three. Absolutely. So stress and stress management and stress resilience, you know, I, this is a, a huge claim to make, but I would say removing stress is one of the top three important factors in creating health for people and for patients. And when we're under stress, you know, I think back to back when we were cavemen and when we were living life, when we didn't have housing or protection, when we felt stressed, it was because we were either running from a tiger or running from a bear or protecting our kid because it was below 20 degrees out and we had no warm clothes to do so. Our body still to this day, if we're about to take an exam or if we're stressed out studying for something or if we're giving a speech or if we're about to have a difficult conversation with a, um, someone we're in a relationship with, our body still acts as if we are running from a tiger or being chased from a bear or are living in a cave. And if we can do everything we can to calm down the way our body is physiologically reacting to a stressful event and not send off those rapid fires of cortisol or releasing the blood sugar or increasing our heart rate or increasing the way that we're breathing, we can then decrease any adverse effects that could come from what could physiologically be happening from a stressful event, which is, could be as, you know, our, everyone perceives stress differently. You know, one patient might think that taking a test is not stressful and somebody else could react to it much greater. So depending on what a patient is and what they're stressed out about, it's finding out what are the top three causes of stress for each person, if it's finances or relationships or, if they're stressed out like they can't sleep and seeing what we can do to calm down those stressors in their life, because having an increased stress does create more room to getting sick. It does create more room for disease and chronic illness to come into our life. And it just creates an unhappy person, right? Mental and emotionally. If we're stressed out, we're going to be sad and depressed. We're going to be anxious. We're going to be moody and frustrated and aggravated and not be able to act in a way in the world that we hope to be presenting ourselves in. So what would you recommend are one, two, or three top stress-busting things that actually work? Absolutely. So we just talked about eating healthy and sleeping, and those are my top two things. The next two things are moving and having community support. So when I say moving, I mean exercising in a way that you feel good in your body, whether that's dancing or a high-intense interval training workout or going for a run or going for a hike. There was a study done um, – I don't know, back in the day that showed even just one hour of exercise two times a week improves adolescent school performance. And the moment in time where you think, I don't have enough time to exercise, that's when you need it the most. That's when you need to give your mind a break from all the schoolwork you're doing, all the emotional stress that you're under, and just release any extra energy through movement and through extra blood flow and just, you know, boosting those exercise endorphins. And then the next thing that is really, really important is having support. So having friends or a therapist 
or a doctor or a family member that you're able to lean on and talk to and so that you feel supported in whatever journey that you're on as well as um, personal time too. So some people feel fulfilled after talking to a friend. Other people might find that they're more, more introverted and feel more fulfilled after a few minutes alone just journaling and releasing their mind in that way. So after diet, sleep, I would say exercising and then support, whether that's your own personal support through alone time or through support through a community of friends and family members or a mental health provider. What are your thoughts on meditation? I love meditation. Every single one of my patients that I see, they are meditating throughout the week. And it's a non-negotiable for me if I'm seeing you as a provider that you are meditating. My goal is to have 30 minutes of silent meditation in the morning, but we start off slow. So two times a week, we'll do a guided meditation for maybe 10 to 15 minutes and giving yourself that time to sit quietly, to gain control of your breath, to figure out how to calm down you know, any um, physical stressors that you might find, whether if it's a quick heartbeat or shortness of breath or the shakiness or the sweats that you'll get before a test, through meditation, you can learn how to bring yourself into a nice, calm, relaxing state. So I, um, I'm a yoga teacher on the side of my doctor job, so I'm a little biased in how important I think meditation is, but I would say most of my colleagues that are naturopathic doctors are also on board with meditating at least three times a week, if not every single day. Do you have a favorite type of meditation? Uh, like I said earlier, I like doing silent meditation, so sitting quietly for 30 minutes and, um, you know, allowing any thought that comes into your head to come through and pass by and giving your body the chance to digest all of your emotions the same way we have to digest our foods and put things in our mouth that go down our esophagus and our stomach and, you know, into our intestines. I talk about with my patients that we have to digest our emotions, and if we're constantly moving throughout the day and never giving ourselves that time to sit quietly and think about things that have gone in our lives, whether it happened 20 years ago or happened this morning, just giving your body the chance to properly process any external stressors or emotions or thoughts that are constantly going through your head and recognizing them. And if you're in a safe space to process things that are coming up for you or just let them go and bring back to light, you know, this is my quiet time to just breathe and to set my intentions for the day. Like I, things that you want to work on. If you're like, I want to work on being selfless today, or if I want to work on creating strength in my body and really sets the, it sets the tone for your whole entire day. So I'm an advocate for doing it first thing in the morning. But if you're able to take 30 minutes during your lunch break and do the same thing, then I think that's just as powerful as well. So I like silent meditations, but it can be hard to go from not meditating to be able to sit quietly with yourself right away. So there's a couple apps that I like. I like to use the Headspace app. You can go on YouTube and look up any guided meditations. And it's about finding one that you feel connected with. Because I don't want my patients to sit and meditate and listen to somebody's voice that they don't feel is in alignment with them. So once they find um, a a guided meditation that they like, you know, we kind of stick to that same person that they'll use for the next few weeks or months until they get to a place where they can do some silent meditations. Or simply journaling. I think journaling has the same benefit as meditation. Getting your thoughts out on paper and being able to process things that way is also very calming for a lot of people. Yeah, I love those. I love those. You know, um, 
for some people, 30 minutes is too much. I even say five minutes. Oh, five, yeah, five minutes. I would yeah, say. Wake up. Yeah, sit down in bed, put on your timer for five minutes and just deep breathe. Because again, mm -hmm. sometimes people are like, why do you just want me to sit there and think? Think about what? I, I don't know. I'm so confused. And so breath work. Yeah. Just breathe deeply one nostril, breathe out the other. Just do that for five minutes. Just slowly, gently, just focus on your breath. And um, a whole new world awaits when you do that, as I say. Just, yeah. It's you completely take a problem that feels like it's not able to be conquered. And if you sit and breathe, like you said, for five minutes, um, your whole perspective can change very quickly. And especially my patients that you're gratitude to who have panic or anxiety attacks. And if we just sit and, and do those slow, deep inhales and deep exhales, counting to eight or 10 for each inhale and exhale, you know, it, can calm you down instantaneously and bring you back to a space where you can start to be, look at your problems from a um, more observational, observational outlook than feel like everything's coming at you and you can't manage it or deal with it. Exactly. You feel much more in control. And, mm -hmm. and then I always say, you know, end that five minute breathing with just one word of what is it that you're grateful for? And it doesn't have to be something spectacular, right? It can be something as simple as, I'm grateful I just took these five minutes for myself. It can be something as simple as that because again, people get mired in, oh gosh, I don't know. What am I grateful for? It sounds like such a big deal, right? I need to make this big list. And it's like, no, no. You're just trying to get to a place where you feel warmth in your heart. Mm -hmm. And whatever brings warmth in your heart, and if you're grateful that the world has cute kittens, then, then be grateful for that. You know, be grateful for the last cute cat video you saw. Like, it doesn't matter. The point is you're trying to evoke an emotion of warmth. Um, and um, and it, again, it can just completely transform how, you, how your entire day goes. So we got stress covered. What, what next? We got stress covered. And that also, I usually have stress and support and community and two separate things. But we talked mm -hmm. about support and community in there. Um, it's so important that we have either people around us, if you don't have people around you, then books or pets or things that make you feel, like you said, like the gratitude, like warm and fuzzy and comforted and that you feel supported. Um, the next thing I would talk about is our, our resilience exercises, which also goes into um, decreasing stress. So what I consider a resilience exercise is something that fills up your cup and makes you feel like you're ready to then go out and take on the day or anything that you need to do. Um, it makes you more capable of being out in the world around you and not being knocked down so easily. So I like to talk to my patients about having a marshmallow jacket. And when you're working with me, I hope to get you to a place where you can put on a marshmallow jacket and things that would come at you and maybe um, hit you and make you angry or frustrated or sick, you get a cold or the flu, no longer have that effect on you and they just bounce off of you like a marshmallow or a trampoline jacket. So things that increase your stress resilience and resilience exercises are different for everybody. For some people, it might be meditating or journaling. For some people, it might be exercise. For some people, it might be calling a friend and venting to them. It might be having an immune boosting tea that you like to enjoy or, um, you know, it's different for each person. So resilience exercise next to physical exercise are the, the top things up there. And then also um, 
products and quality of water. If you want to talk about, or if we want to talk about the toxicity of the environment around us and being mindful and aware of the things that we're putting on our body or into our body are very close to sleep and diet and stress and mindfulness and all of that. Oh, let's please talk about toxins because I have personally found that toxic overload is the cause of 90% of our ailments. Mm -hmm. So talk, talk about that. What, what are these toxins? How are we putting them on? How yeah. are we ingesting them? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And so toxins in our environment, they can be so many different things from the pollution in the air that we're breathing, the mercury that could be in our foods or the products that we're putting on our skin or washing our hair with, they um, could have toxins as well. And the toxins that I'll specifically talk about, since we're all, we are tailoring this towards adolescents, and I like to tailor mm -hmm. towards women, is what we call the xenoestrogens, which are the environmental estrogens that are in products, um, such as beauty products, plastics, um, sometimes in the foods that we eat, and these xenoestrogens resemble the estrogens in our own body. And then once our body is looking at like, oh, we have all these estrogens inside of us, we start to have an interference with our immune system. They can hold on to um, estrogens in our fat cells and cause weight gain. They are predisposing us to autoimmune disorders. They are um, just, it's a, it creates a toxic over, overload, like you said earlier. So, um, you know, I have certain non-toxic makeups that I recommend for my patients to wear and cleaning products and fragrance, fragrances that don't have toxins in them. But um, being aware that I, so for like a person on the street that I'm talking to about this, I tell them anything that you're putting on your skin or washing your clothes in, you want to make sure that you would also eat it because your body is absorbing it the way you would if you were orally ingesting it. Exactly. Just like and so if you're not going to drink your lotion, then I don't want you putting it on your hands. And if you wouldn't eat your perfume, then I don't want you spraying it near your airways or on your body or your clothes. And that kind of puts a light bulb on most people's heads like, wow, you know, and then we'll start looking at the back of the labels for their shampoos or for the foods that they're eating and making sure that you can understand every single ingredient on that list. And the second you read a word that you're like, I'm not really sure what that is. That's a pretty good sign that you probably do not want to be using it. You know, um, because I've realized from my own experience how many products are actually bad, I found that it's easier to just go to the EWG.org site, find them on the brands that are good, and then just buy everything from them. And so that's what I've done. I just, you know, I shop at 100% pure organic, and I do 100% juice beauty products, which are organic. And I go to Whole Foods and I look at the organic brands there and I, you know, I don't buy the Chanel's, et cetera, because when I looked at the ingredients, I was horrified. Yeah. Um, it's a challenge because teenagers want to, you know, buy all the stuff that's showing up on Instagram and want to follow the, the big celebrities with their new lines and they're all toxic. How do you convince a teen to realize that that stuff is, is what's hurting them? Yeah. So I explained to them, so, you know, it's hard to explain before they do this experiment themselves, because once you do remove all these toxins and you start using the more natural substances, 
you'll see that if you do anything that's not that is toxic, whether that's perfume or shampoo or hairspray, you will start to feel nauseous or get headaches or get weight gain or get fatigue the second you introduce those back into your environment. But I also explained that um, 80% of people who have autoimmune diseases are women. And I would say that most of those women have autoimmune diseases because of the toxic load around them. So that's a big motivator for me and for a lot of my patients is like, you don't want to be in a place where your health is in danger because you used a nail polish or you washed your um, clothes in a laundry detergent that smells nicer than some other ones might with like that special fragrance. So, um, you know, a big part of what naturopathic doctors do with their patients is being a doc, a, being a teacher as doctor and a doctor as teacher and teaching them about what could happen with this higher toxic load and how it negatively affects our immune system and how it can really play such a big role with our hormones as well. Because, you know, a lot of young women, when I'm seeing them, they are trying to regulate their menstrual cycle and they want to have a healthy body one day, whether that's in five or 10 years to then have a healthy pregnancy and be a healthy mom. And everything that you're doing from, you know, when you're basically a newborn, but also when you then have control of your, over your own health when you're 17 or 18 has an effect for so many years down the line. So helping a patient understand their long-term health goals. And I sit down with my patients and I talk to them, like, where do you want to be in five, 10 and 15 years with your health? And then once we both have that vision, we're able to then accurately go through and make sure that we're doing all of the right things to get them to where they want to be. And really keeping in the forefront of our minds what our why is in our health journey. And so why, why do they want to get to where they want to be? And once they know their, their main goal, it's very easy to not bring in those toxic things. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as we are all humans, we all tend to wait until things get unbearable and then we make change. So my big call in this interview is you know if you're listening and you don't feel good and you know something's off these are some really simple tips that dr sarah is giving you give it a shot go seven days take seven days and just follow everything she's been you know guiding you with in terms of sleep and diet and nutrition and you know not having coffee first thing in the morning and getting your eight hours of sleep and not putting things in your hair face body that you wouldn't ingest, um, just do it. Do it for seven days. See if you feel better. You know, don't do gluten dairy for, for seven, eight days. And if you feel better, you'll have your answer and you'll know what you need to keep doing. Um, Dr. So, Dr. Sarah, what about deficiencies? You know, a lot of us face specific issues because we're deficient. I think vitamin D is on the top of the list for women, especially iron, yeah. being anemic. I know calcium can be an issue. What are your thoughts on getting some blood testing done full panel? Absolutely. So we do a lot of comprehensive blood testing here in uh, where I practice in San Diego. And it's very important to annually, if not every six months, look at your blood panels for your lipids, for your hormones, for your thyroid, and, and for your vitamin D. And like you said, checking in anemia patterns or look, looking at your iron um, it's super important and all of these things have a factor in our overall health with our immune system and with our hormone regulation and you know vitamin d it's i would say in 85 percent of my patients people's vitamin d is below 30 and in a functional range we like to see it around 70 and above and that's a very easy fix for people
patients who are fatigued or getting sick a lot or are feeling depression. Um, so yeah, checking in on your health markers with a, a doctor near you who would be more than happy to run a comprehensive panel and look at all of those things. In my practice, we look at about 70 different things in the blood test. And typically, unfortunately, an average medical doctor only looks at maybe 10 to 15 if we're lucky. Um, so if you find that improving your diet, improving your sleep, getting in an exercise, practicing mindfulness, you know, doing all the things we talked about today still isn't working, I strongly encourage you to find a health provider in your area who will then look into some underlying causes of what else might be going on. What about magnesium, by the way? Magnesium? I love magnesium. <laughs> I love magnesium. That as deficiency in a lot of teens. And then what do you recommend? Yeah, I, I recommend if a lot of people who are magnesium having deficiencies are the ones that are struggling with sleep. And magnesium is so important for our bowel movements, for having healthy sleep, for having a good cognitive function. So there's a couple of um, supplements that I like for, for magnesium, depending on what it is that they're struggling with. If it's the bowel movements, if it's the sleep, or if it's for cognitive function, there's so many different types of magnesium to get into our body. So um, depending on what a patient is going through, then, then I'll have a, a good recommendation for magnesium. Mm, yeah, I find that that's just one of the top ones. Let's talk bowel movement because we didn't miss that one. And that one's key. That one's key. So what's the deal with bowel movement and what, what do the teens need to be tracking for? Yeah, absolutely. So bowel movements are so important for three main reasons. One, to properly, properly digest your nutrients and break them down to then probably properly, I can't say that word right, properly absorb them and then to um, detoxify and eliminate toxins or excess hormones that are in your body. So to have a proper bowel movement, you're going to be wanting to be pooping at least one time a day and having a well-formed bowel movement. So that means not any diarrhea. There is no straining or painfulness when having a bowel movement. And looking in your stool and making sure there's no blood, there's no undigested food in it, and, um, and just paying attention to the quality of it, and it's not super, super mushy or really, really hard. I, you know, I talk a lot about bowel movements in my practice, and in the beginning, it can be kind of uncomfortable for patients to disclose, but you get pretty comfortable when you work with an integrative doctor about talking about what your poop looks like and, you know, whether there's gas or belching or bloating and all that stuff. So... I think a bowel movement is a very big indicator into our health and knowing if we're having a healthy digest digestion. Um, the same way a menstrual cycle is a good indicator of what our health looks like. You want to be having those at the same cyclical timing and everything like that. So bowel movements are super important. And a quick thing, if you're not having a bowel movement every day, check your water intake. Make sure you're drinking half your body weight in ounces of water a day. And then move on to other ways to induce a bowel movement, whether that's hot water with lemon in the morning or getting a squatty potty so you can structurally align yourself to have a proper bowel movement. Or maybe you need magnesium or maybe you need to increase your fiber intake and maybe you then need to look into why you're not having a bowel movement and getting a stool test done. So I do a lot of comprehensive stool tests in my practice as well, checking in on um, any inflammation in the gut, checking in on our um, the bacteria in the gut, making sure there's a proper amount of healthy and not too much unhealthy bacteria. So I love looking into the bowel movements and, and investigating patients in that regard too. <laughs> I have found at least um, for my family that 
bowel movement is linked to how much good bacteria you have. And so when you take probiotics like a terraflora, yep. uh, boom, it all sorts out. There you go. <laughs> and the reason, you know, half of, or more of, of all of us are constipated is because we have no great bacteria. And why is that? Because we're taking glyphosate in every meal. Yep. And so our guts are so, so battered and bruised there isn't a colorful, thriving rainforest inside. And so there's no happy microbes in there to eat, digest, you know, take in the toxins. I mean, there's so much new literature on how amazing these little microbes are and how their health drives our health. And, um, you know, gut, to your point, you know, we could talk for hours on just the gut, just like you yeah. could talk for hours and just sleep. And, okay. uh, and it is all linked. We know that when you have stress, all the good bacteria die. Um, it's incredible how you need to stay joyful and happy for your gut to function properly. So exactly. and you need to sleep in order to feel good. And so then your gut function and your bowel is really linked to your sleep. And it's all connected, isn't it? It is totally all connected. And especially um, in regards to gut and increasing that good bacteria, I find that a lot of college students are being put on antibiotics when they get sick, sick because that's the only resource they have is that they're medical health provider on their school's campus and you know they don't know how to investigate what could be causing their sore throat or stuffy nose and recognize it might not be from an infection but they get antibiotics anyway and that's going to completely deplete their gut bacteria and then you're kind of starting from zero and replenishing that healthy bacteria that you were just talking about so a healthy gut is you know something that I I love to talk about and to make sure my patients have one and if they don't have one then make sure they get one I love it so informative thank you so much Dr. Sarah and um, hopefully we're gonna get you on healcircle.org and we're gonna have you available to different students who have questions directly for you so if you're watching this and you're a student you know check out healcircle.org and uh, we'll have this interview posted there as well. And go ahead and post your questions and let's get the conversation started. Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. And for the rest of you, stay smiling. I'll see you on another podcast. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.